Therefore, remember that formerly you who are Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, that done in the body by the hands of men, remember that at the time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, you who are once far away have been brought near through the blood of Christ. For he himself is our peace, who has made the two men and has destroyed the barrier from the dividing wall of hostility by abolishing in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His purpose was to create in himself one new man out of the two, thus making peace, and in this one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you, who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we, were, we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Brothers and sisters, saints who have gathered today, grace and peace are yours from Jesus Christ and from God our Father. Uh, this morning, as Victor said, we're going to be talking about the construction project, but, but in order to talk about the construction project that we are in Jesus, we first have to talk about the demolition project. Right, and that's often true of any type of construction. First, you have to demolish. Right, first you have to level before you can build anything, before you can construct anything. And I'm I'm particularly adept at demolition, and so I'm, maybe that's why this text is mine for the day. Um, I, I'm guessing that some of you had the opportunity to visit uh, the Gulf region uh, after Hurricane Katrina. Um, some of you probably even were involved in mucking houses. Were some of you, some of you guys do that? Okay, no one. So fantastic. <laughs> oh. All right, then may, let me explain the process for you. Just, we took a, about five different churches banded together. We took about 175 kids down there to do some mucking of the houses. And mucking of a house, we learned, was uh, the process basically of demolishing the house just, just to the studs and the roof. And the group that we were with, the organization that we were with, asked us to do this and said specifically that really the job we were doing was bringing the house to a position where the homeowner could return to the house realized there was nothing of worth there and allow the house to be destroyed. And so in some ways it was kind of somber work. Um, but the destruction of the house was necessary because the houses had been set full of water, right, for a, a period of time and mold had grown in and all that kind of stuff. And you remember how many houses were impacted. Well, we were doing like one house a day, like for every 20 kids. And there was a lot of just drywall that needed to be torn down and stuff that needed to be carried out of the house. And then there was always like that one part of the house that was really hard to destroy, and so my brother-in-law, who was leading another church, who's also a pretty, good, pretty big guy, um, he and I kind of got particularly adept at demolition with a sledgehammer, right? And so we'd go like into the bathroom, and we'd be just kind of swinging away at, these, uh, at the tile and all that kind of stuff and breaking it down. And, and let me tell you, by the way, if you, if you swing the full sledgehammer full bore at an iron bathtub, it'll shake the whole house, all right? And so, I mean, just take my word for it. And, and so we did this in, in multiple houses, and we kind of began to joke about it. And our motto was, we break things, right? And so the kids kind of got into it. When there was a part they couldn't do, they'd call us in, like, should we break things? We'd go and destroy it. All right, well, we'll fast forward now. Our first week we were in New Orleans. The second week we were in Biloxi, Mississippi. Not all demolition work is done with a sledgehammer. Some of it requires a little bit more finesse. And so we were in a, a historic house, which was owned by the city of Biloxi. The second floor of the house had been untouched. The first floor of the house was like completely destroyed. And we had kids who were on the second floor recovering 
uh, artifacts and different historical pieces, and they were packing them up in boxes, but they were on the second floor of a house where the windows had long since been painted shut in Biloxi, Mississippi in July. Right? So you can imagine, not a real pleasant place. And so we wanted to open up the windows and just to get at least some airflow in there for them. And so my brother-in-law and I, again, we were up there, and we were trying to cut the windows, right? Trying to cut them with a razor blade, trying to cut them loose to get them open for these kids. And so we're doing this cut in the one window, and I bang on the top, and I'm inside, and I bang on the top of the window, and when I do, one of the panes of glass comes out. It slides down the house, and then starts sliding down the roof toward the edge, right? Well, you can't chase a pane of glass. I can't chase a pane of glass down a roof. And so I, of course, yelled, look out below, Well, at that time, the oldest member of our group, who was 71 years old, came out of the house with arms full of garbage. And he comes walking down the front porch, and I yell, look out below. And so human instinct is to turn and look up. And the pane of glass caught him right above the eye. And cut open his forehead. And I would have yelled lots of other things, and he just went, oh, that really hurt. (laughs) And then he said, I think I'm going to probably need to go to the hospital for that one. So they took him. And when he came back, of course, we were apologizing profusely. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. I'm so sorry. Well, everyone had kind of gotten into our act the entire week. And so he looks at us and joking probably long before the jokes were funny. And he looks at us and said, we break things. Sometimes those things are people. (laughs) And it's true. Right? And all joking aside, I can tell you that I break things. And sometimes those things are people. And I can say that because I know that you are also all humans. And you also can say the same thing, that you break people. And when you consider the people that you have broken in your life, if you were to take some time and actually make a list of people that you have broken, likely that list would start to get fairly long and it would sort of be embarrassing for you to admit how many names might be on that list. Names of people that you broke, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Names of people that you wish weren't on that list. Names of people that are close to you. and Names of people that are far off. And when you start to make that list, you would realize that there are things that you have done that have broken people. And it wasn't always with intention, right? I mean, when I was when I was breaking people with panes of glass, we were just trying to open up the windows. We were trying to get airflow in there for the kids that were working upstairs. We were in the midst of something that was admirable when something bad happened. And how many times is that true in our own lives where we're expending a bunch of emotional energy trying to do something that's good and then someone who's the closest to us will come up and we have no more emotional energy for them. And so we break them. Times said things that we wish we hadn't or when we didn't say things that we wish we had, times when we did things we wish we didn't do, times when we know that there were things we should have done to help. At the core of that breaking of people is our sin. The core of that, that breaking of people is our own sinfulness and our pride. It's, it's our own sense of self-importance. We break people. And that's what the Apostle Paul calls building up walls of hostility in our lives. It's division and hostility that we create, division and hostility that that we participate. And it's a conflict that we see all around us. It's a conflict that we see in our own lives. It's a conflict that we see in our society. It's one that we even can can poke fun at, right? We can talk about division and, and hostility, and I bet you even have your favorite conflict, right? I know I have my favorite conflict, right? 
insert my favorite conflict here. Um, my favorite one is this one. Right? I mean, those are my two favorite teams, the Red Sox and whoever beats the Yankees. And now a bunch of you are sitting here and you're like, okay, it's baseball, no big deal, right? But if I were to mention another team that plays a certain sport from Massachusetts, we might have a problem, right? <laughs> might create a little bit of tension between us. It might create a little hostility. And you see, that's the way it is with this kind of tension, it's that the things that we think are the most important, the things that we think might create the greatest tension, the things that we think aren't important or don't matter, it's something different for somebody else, isn't it? And you begin to see this tension in all sorts of areas, and all sorts of degrees all around us. But it's not just only in the world. And if we'll get real serious for a second, it's even in the church. That there is even conflict in the church, and there always has been, right? One of the, one of the problems is that people like to caricature the early church as some type of Shangri-La, where everybody just got along and everything was peaceful, but it's not true. That's not the testament of the scriptures at all. In fact, I'll point you to an obscure part of the book of Philippians. It's just two little sentences in there. The Apostle Paul, Philippians chapter 4, talks about two ladies. Their names are Euodia and Syntyche. And I'm going to say with with relative assurance that there is no one here this morning named Euodia and Syntyche, right? Nor do you know anyone named Euodia and Syntyche, though they are both mentioned in the New Testament, right? But you know Peter, John, James, Paul, you know a Mary, right? But Euodia and Syntyche don't, don't make it to our list of names that we decide to name our children. Why? It's because of this. The Apostle Paul says this in Philippians chapter 4. I entreat, I encourage, I admonish Euodia and Syntyche to cease their disagreement and to get along in the Lord. I encourage, I admonish, Yodi and Syntyche, to stop fighting and to get along, right? To understand that they are one in Jesus. And that little verse, or those little sentences, we, we see this conflict that exists in the early church, and we know precious little about it. That's it. They're never mentioned again. And I gotta tell you, my biggest fear is that if I had been alive during biblical times, that would be the type of mention that I would get in the New Testament. And by the way, I think that's why we don't know much about their conflict. It's so that we can very easily insert ourselves into that passage. So that we can hear, through the power of the Holy Spirit, these words speaking to us. I entreat, I admonish Scott and Brad to stop disagreeing and to get along in the Lord. Brad and I don't really have a conflict right now. Everybody's looking at you, Brad, like, wow, what's your conflict? <laughs> I admonish to knock it off and to get along in the Lord, to understand that you are one in Jesus, right? There's always been this conflict. I want to give you one more example of this, and I want to go even further back than Philippi. I want to go back to the original disciples, Right? And people will say, well, surely the disciples, well, they all got along. I mean, look at how perfect they were. No, they weren't. In fact, if you look at the listing of disciples, there's an interesting little bit of detail that's given for us in Matthew chapter 10. As Jesus is sending them out, and he's giving them power over evil spirits, and he's sending them out to do his work, it says this, the names of the 12 apostles are these. And you know the beginning of the list, right? Simon, Peter, Andrew, his brother, James, the son of Zebedee, John, his brother, Bartholomew, and then you get into some of those more obscure names. Thomas, 
Matthew the tax collector, James son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus, Simon the zealot, and then finally Judas, who would betray him. Right? Now, what's interesting about the list is that all of them have family names. Right? That's the only thing that's given as the detail. This is someone's brother. This is who their dad was. Except when you get to Matthew, then you have this detail. It says Matthew, the tax collector. And then you get to Simon, and it says Simon, the zealot. And whenever you have a detail that kind of stands out, I've told you this before, you need to pay attention to those details because they're given for a reason. And what you begin to understand just by simple examination is that Matthew was a tax collector, Simon was a zealot. What that means is that Matthew was an employee of the Roman government. He had a contract with Rome to exact taxes from all the people who lived in his region. Matthew worked for Rome. Simon was a zealot. That means he was an Israelite who had vowed everything in his fiber to fighting against Rome and getting Israel to be independent again. Even to the point of death, he was a zealot. So Matthew works for Rome. Simon has pledged his life in opposition to Rome. Now imagine what happens when the two of them sit together at dinner. Imagine how that conversation goes. You think it was always peaceful? Do you think it was always Shangri-La and roses? Or do you think the two of them had some conflict one with another? And that's why as we read through this list of disciples, these two have that detail given about them. It's so that we will understand that this conflict has always been, but we will hear that admonishment, but agree in the Lord. And that these 12 were brought together from very disparate situations, but brought together to walk with Jesus and to be markedly different because of it. That if even Matthew and Simon could get along, but there's conflict. And there's conflict that's all around us, dividing walls of hostility, things that we do to decide who's us and who's them, things that we do to decide who's in and who's out. And that's exactly the situation into which the Apostle Paul writes this letter to the Ephesians. When Paul is writing to the Ephesians, he's writing into a real, tense, palpable situation. One that's not just hypothetical, as if there might be some conflict in the church. When Paul talks about the dividing wall of hostility between them, when Paul speaks about the conflict between the circumcision and the uncircumcision group, he's not just saying this as if this could come up. He's speaking to a situation that they all know. The dividing wall was real, right? Just rehearse your memory of the type of temple that God asked his people to build. And if you look at the temple, you're going to see different divisions within that temple. In the center, right, and it's on the right-hand side of the picture, you have that tall column. Inside there was one division that was called the Holy of Holies. Only one person a year could enter into that, and that was the chief priest and only with sacrifice. And then the court that immediately surrounded the Holy of Holies was called the Court of the Israelites. And by the way, that was the Court of the Israelite Men who are allowed to be that close to the Holy of Holies. And then the next court that you see, which is in front of that, is the court of the Israelite women. And the Israelite women were allowed to be in that court. And then you have that big wall that's in front of all those colonnade. That colonnade, you have the big wall and that big court. That's the court of everyone else. It was called the court of the Gentiles. When Paul was speaking of the dividing wall of hostility, 
That's the wall that he was talking about, the wall that separated the Gentiles from the Israelites. It became known as the dividing wall of hostility because there was true hostility between the Gentiles and the, and the Israelites. True hostility between the two crowds. That dividing wall of hostility stood in between them, and it was real. And the people in Ephesus knew it. But when Paul was writing to the situation, I was reminding you that it was tense. And it was tense because Paul himself had had a run-in because of this wall. And it happened like this. You can read about it in Acts chapter 21. Paul was walking around Jerusalem with a man named Trophimus. I won't ask you to remember his name, but I will ask you to remember where he was from. He's called Trophimus the Ephesian, which means he's from Ephesus. He's a Gentile, not an Israelite, which is appropriate because Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, right? He went to spread the name of Jesus among all of those who were not Israel, though he himself was an Israelite. So Paul is walking around Jerusalem in Acts chapter 21 with Trophimus the Ephesian, with a Gentile. He's out in the marketplace. He's doing his ministry. He's speaking to people. Later on that day, Paul was seen inside the temple and specifically inside the court of the Israelites because Paul was allowed to go in there. While he was inside, he was spotted by some other Israelites from Asia, from Ephesus, right? Other Israelites from Ephesus saw him inside the court of the Israelites, and they thought, well, wait a minute, if he was with Trophimus before, Trophimus has to be somewhere inside here, right? Paul must have broken the law. He's brought somebody inside here who doesn't belong. He's brought a them into the us. And so they drag Paul out by his hair, take him out into the street, and beat him with the intent of killing him. All because they assumed that he had broken the law. Now I told you already, where was Trophimus from? Ephesus. And where were the people who had done the beating, where were they from? And where is Paul writing to? You think there was a little bit of tension in that church? Now, the scriptures don't tell us who was present at the first reading of Paul's letter. But let's assume just for a second that both parties were represented. Let's assume for a second that Trophimus himself is there. And now the Apostle Paul is talking about this dividing wall of hostility that keeps them out and lets us in. And he's talking about how it needs to be torn down. Let's hear Paul talking to the circumcision group and the uncircumcision group. And let's assume that nobody that day in church could make eye contact with one another because everyone was busy looking at their feet. Because this was tense. This was real hostility between real people. At the very least, they knew of what had happened to Paul on account of a bunch of Ephesians. But what's interesting is, here is Paul saying that the dividing wall of hostility needs to be torn down. He doesn't say, hey, Trophimus, if you're listening, get a mob and get some revenge. He doesn't say, how dare all of you do this? You should all be put to death. Instead, he calls out both groups. He says, look, circumcision group, you're that way by the hands of men. Remember that God claimed you as his own, and that's where your identity lies. Listen, uncircumcision group, lest you should start to puff yourself up and think you're right, remember that before God claimed you, you were nothing. You were without God and without hope in the world. And then listen to what he says. But now in Jesus Christ, you are brought together that the dividing wall of hostility might be destroyed. Tear down the wall, Paul says. 
You see, that's how the Apostle Paul said that this conflict is going to be resolved. And I got to admit, as I was preparing for this sermon and Victor and I were talking, I said, I'm going to steer as far clear of politics as I possibly can. Even though I know that that's a source of a lot of our conflict and a lot of our tension, and I'm going to still keep to that, but I'm going to use a political example, but it's from 1987, so I'm assuming that we're on safe footing. Right, we're past the conflicts of 1987, yes? Some of you aren't so sure yet. Let's see what the conflict is before we push too far. Right, and there was a moment uh, when President Reagan gave a famous speech at the Brandenburg Gate to the Berlin Wall. And during that speech, he said, Mr. Gorbachev, tear down this wall. And I bring this up for two reasons. The first one is because of the location of where he made the speech. He didn't give the speech from his Oval Office in Washington, D.C. He was standing at the Brandenburg Gate, standing at the very wall that he was asking to be torn down. It was in the midst of the hostility that he called for a difference. But the second reason that I bring it up is because he was calling for a political solution to a political problem. And that's not what Paul is talking about here. Paul is reminding us that in this world we will always have tension, we will always have division, we will always have conflict, we will always have hostility, but God forbid, and I mean that, God forbid that we seek a solution in the world, that we seek a solution based on on human design or politics, but instead that we would understand that the only solution that is present is the solution which is in the scriptures. What the apostle Paul says is that peace is sought, peace is earned and gained in the body of Jesus on the cross. Did you hear that? That he abolished it in his flesh. Meaning that he took on the brokenness and conflict, that he took that within his very flesh, and then it says this, killing the hostility. And I love that because it's so violent. Because it acknowledges the violence of our brokenness. And of the ways that we break people. And yet he doesn't come to smash and destroy. He comes instead to destroy the hostility itself. Taking it to the cross. And bearing its violence in his flesh. That he might bring peace to those who are far off. And to those who are near. That he might in fact bring us together. Where the ground is level at the cross. That we would understand that in Jesus Christ, in his body, in his cross, we have forgiveness of sins. And since we have forgiveness of sins for the ways that we have broken other people, what does Jesus say? Those who have been forgiven much, how can we do any less? That leads us to a bunch of uncomfortable questions, doesn't it? Like, what dividing walls have you constructed? What dividing walls of hostility have you constructed in your life to keep them out and to preserve me? And as if that's not uncomfortable enough, what about the question of what dividing walls have we constructed? What dividing walls have we as the church constructed to keep others out so that we can stay in? What, what walls have we constructed? Because that's what Paul speaks about. The dividing wall of hostility doesn't just create tension between us and another as if we get one baseball team and suddenly everyone's going to agree. It instead speaks of walls that we create that keep other people from the forgiveness of sins which we ourselves have received. 
And so the Apostle Paul says that Jesus tears down that dividing wall. If Jesus tears it down, how dare we construct anything in its place? But you have to understand the true construction project that Jesus is undertaking on our behalf. Not only is he tearing down this wall, not only is there demolition, but there is construction. And so I'd be remiss if I didn't at least mention it that we're going to handle this text later on in the series. It's what immediately comes next. As the Apostle Paul writes to the Ephesians, speaking first of the destruction and then of the construction. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens. You are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God. Listen to this. Built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the very cornerstone. Right? Remember the foundation of the house. It's the prophets and the apostles. It's the words of the scriptures. Remember the cornerstone, Jesus Christ, so that you understand what you are being built up into and you don't go swimming in a pool where you don't belong. But instead understanding that we are being built into what on this foundation? We are being built into a whole structure joined together that grows into a holy temple in the Lord. What a beautiful picture. What an amazing construction project that God is doing with us to first break down the dividing walls of hostility in his flesh, to forgive us of our sins and the ways that we have broken other people and to then construct us into a holy temple of forgiveness, a place where others can come and where there isn't a wall that divides them, but instead a place where they are invited. What a beautiful picture of all the saints of God working together to demonstrate the forgiveness that we ourselves have received. And as we demonstrate that to the world, we prove that we are God's construction project, a temple created in Christ Jesus to be holy, and to be truly for others, for the glory of the one who is our chief cornerstone, Jesus. Amen.